This week's Escape Pod was recorded live at Balticon 43 on May 23rd, 2009. <laughs> Alright, pump that up just a little bit. Escape Pod, episode, I don't know. Dude never tells me anything. I'm really nervous right now. I'm not used to speaking in front of crowds. But, whatever. The story is, Rogue Farm, by Charles Strauss. I'll be at the bar, if you need me. Drinking. Okay. Shouldn't have called for applause there. We missed the punchline. <laughs> anyway, uh, hello everybody. I'm Steve Illy. And we are, these are a bunch of suckers. I mean, my dearest, closest friends. Uh, who a little bit of both. Yeah, bit pretty of much. Get suckers for your closest friends. It's great for your self-esteem. Um, anyway, we will be recording, uh, thanks to the fabulous generosity of our guest of honor, Mr. Charles Strauss. This is just his external shell. I think he's already been uploaded to the internet somewhere. Uh, come the singularity, he'll be first against the wall. Right. Uh, so this is a story that's going to be coming out of the anthology Wireless, which is out when, Mr. Strauss? Mid-July. Mid-July. Okay, is that on both shores both here shores, in the UK? Yep. Ace okay. and Orbit. Ace and Orbit. Fabulous. Yep. So, this is a really, really fun story. I want to thank Paul Fisher for recommending this story in particular to us and for setting it up. I think this was partly T's fault and partly Paul's fault. And, and they say, hey, come to a live escape pod. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Uh, so, this is kind of a first for everybody. I want to let you know that given that we have not actually done like a dress rehearsal of this or anything, <laughs> there, there may be flubs. Uh, roll with it. I thought yeah. this was the dress rehearsal. <laughs> I thought this was the tech rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. So, so why aren't you dressed then? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, roll with that. We always edit things in post. But feel free to laugh. Feel free to have a good time. We like that. Okay. Are we set? So, without further ado, it's story time. <laughs> Rogue Farm. By Charles Strauss. It was a bright, cool March morning. Mare's tails trailed across the southeastern sky towards the rising sun. Joe shivered slightly in the driver's seat as he twisted the starter handle on the old front loader he used to muck out the barn. Like its owner, the ancient Massey Ferguson had seen better days, but it had survived worse abuse than Joe routinely handed out. The diesel clattered, spat out a gobbet of thick blue smoke, and chattered to itself dyspeptically. His mind as blank as the sky above, Joe slid the tractor into gear, raised the front scoop, and began turning it towards the open doors of the barn, just in time to see an itinerant farm coming down the road. Bugger, swore Joe. The tractor engine made a hideous grinding noise and died. He took a second glance, eyes wide, then climbed down from the tractor and trotted over to the kitchen door at the side of the farmhouse. Maddie, he called, forgetting the two-way radio clipped to his sweater hem. Maddie, there's a farm coming. Joe? Is that you? Where are you? Her voice wafted vaguely from the bowels of the house. Where are you? I'm in the bathroom. Bugger, he said again. Is this the one we had around the end last month? The sound of a toilet sluiced through his worry. It was followed by a drumming of feet on the staircase. Then Maddie erupted into the kitchen. Where is it? Out front, about a quarter mile up the lane. Right. Hair wild and eyes angry about having her morning ablutions cut short... 
Maddie yanked a heavy green coat on over her shirt. Open the cupboard yet? I was thinking you'd want to talk to it first. To right I want to talk to it. If it's that one that's been lurking around the cops near Edgar's Pond, I got some issues to discuss with it. Joe shook his head at her anger and went to unlock the cupboard in the back room. You take the shotgun and keep it off our property. I'll be out in a minute. Joe nodded to himself, then carefully picked out the 12-gauge and a preloaded magazine. The gun's power-on self-test lights flickered erratically, but it seemed to have a full charge. Slinging it, he locked the cupboard carefully and went back out into the farmyard to warn off their unwelcome visitor. The farm squatted, buzzing and clicking to itself in the road outside Armitage End. Joe eyed it warily from behind the wooden gate, shotgun under his arm. It was a medium-sized one, probably with half a dozen human components subsumed into it. A formidable collective. Already it was deep into farm fugue, no longer relating very clearly to people outside its own communion of mind. Beneath its leathery black skin, he could see hints of internal structure, cytocellular macro-assemblies, flexing and glooping in disturbing motions. Even though it was only a young adolescent, it was already the size of an antique heavy tank and blocked the road just as efficiently as an apatosaurus would have. It smelled of yeast and gasoline. Joe had an uneasy feeling that it was watching him. Bugger it, I do not have time for this. The stable, waiting for the small herd of cloned spider cows cluttering up the north paddock, was still knee-deep in manure, and the tractor seat wasn't getting any warmer while he shivered out here waiting for Maddie to come and sort this thing out. It wasn't a big herd, but it was as big as his land and labor could manage. The big biofabricator in the shed could assemble mammalian livestock faster than he could feed them up and sell them with an honest, hand-raised, not-bat-grown label. What do you want with us? He yelled up at the gently buzzing farm. Brains! Fresh brains for baby Jesus! Crooned the farm in a warm contralto, startling Joe half out of his skin. By my brains! Half a dozen disturbing cauliflower shapes poked suggestively out of the farm's back, then retracted again, coyly. Don't want no brains around here. Joe's fingers whitened on the stock of his shotgun. Don't want your kind around here, neither. Go away! I'm a nine-legged semi-automatic groove machine, (laughs) crooned the farm. I'm on On my way to Jupiter on a mission for love. Won't Won't you buy buy my brains? brains? Three curious eyes on stalks extruded from its upper glasses. Ugh. Joe was saved from having to dream up any more ways of saying fuck off by Maddie's arrival. She'd managed to sneak her old battle dress home after a stint keeping the peace in Mesopotamia 20 years ago. And she'd managed to keep herself in shape enough to squeeze inside. Its left knee squealed ominously when she walked it about, which wasn't often, but it still worked well enough to manage its main task. Intimidating trespassers. You... She raised one translucent arm, pointed at the farm. Get off my land, now. Taking his cue, Joe raised his shotgun and thumbed the selector to full auto. It wasn't a patch on the hardware riding Maddie's shoulders, but it underlined the point. The farm hooted. Why don't don't you love love me? It asked plaintively. Get off my land, Maddie amplified, volume cranked up so high that Joe winced. Ten seconds. Nine. Eight. Thin rings sprang out from the sides of her arms, whining with the stress of long disuse as the Goss gun powered up. I'm I'm going, going, I'm going. going. The farm lifted itself slightly, shuffling backwards. Don't Don't understand. understand. 
I only wanted to set you free to explore the universe. Nobody wants to buy my fresh fruit and brains. What's wrong with you people? They waited until the farm had retreated round the bend at the top of the hill. Maddie was the first to relax, the rings retracting back into the arms of her battle dress, which solidified from ethereal translucency to neutral olive drab as it powered down. Joe safed his shotgun. Bastard. Fucking A. Maddie looked haggard. That was a bold one. Her face was white and pinched looking, Joe noted. Her fists were clenched. She had the shakes, he realized, without surprise. Tonight was going to be another major nightmare night, and no mistake. The fence. They discussed wiring up an outer wire to the CHP baseload from their little methane plant, on again and off again for the past year. Maybe this time. Maybe. Maddie wasn't keen on the idea of frying passersby without warning, but if anything might bring her around, it would be the prospect of being squatted by a rogue farm. Help me out of this, and I'll cook breakfast. Gotta go muck out the barn. It can wait on breakfast. I need you. Oh, okay. Joe nodded. She was looking bad. It had been a few years since her last fatal breakdown. But when Maddie said, I need you, it was a bad idea to ignore her. That way led to back-breaking labor on the biofab and loading her backup tapes into the new body. Always a messy business. He took her arm and steered her towards the back porch. They were nearly there when he paused. What is it now? I haven't seen Bob for a while. Send him to let the cows in the north paddock after milking. Do you think... We can check from the control room. Are you really worried? With that thing blundering around? What do you think? He's a good working dog. It won't hurt him. He'll be all right. Just you page him. After Joe helped her out of her battle dress, and after Maddie spent a good long while calming down, they breakfasted on eggs from their own hens, homemade cheese, and toasted bread made with rye from the hippie commune on the other side of the valley. The stone-floored kitchen in the dilapidated house they'd rebuilt together over the past 20 years was warm and homely. The only purchase from outside the valley was the coffee, beans from a hearty GM strain that grew like a straggling teenager's beard all along the Cumbrian hilltops. They didn't say much. Joe, because he never did, and Maddie, because there wasn't anything that she wanted to say. Silence kept her personal demons down. They'd known each other for many years, and even when there wasn't anything to say... They could cope with each other's silence. The voice radio on the windowsill opposite the cast-iron stove stayed off, along with the TV set hanging on the wall next to the fridge. Breakfast was a quiet time of day. Dog's not answering, Joe commented over the dregs of his coffee. He's a good dog. Maddie glanced at the yard gate uncertainly. You afraid he's going to run away to Jupiter? He was with me in the shit. Joe picked up his plate and carried it to the sink began running hot water onto the dishes. After I cleaned up the lines, I told him to go take the herd up to the paddock while I did the barn. He glanced up, looking out the window with a worried expression. The Massey Ferguson was parked right in front of the open barn doors, as if to hold at bay the mountain of dung, straw, and silage that mounded up inside like an invading odious enemy, relic of a frosty winter past. Maddie shoved him aside gently and picked up one of the walkie-talkies from the charge point on the windowsill. It bleeped and chuckled at her. Bob, come in. Over. He's probably lost his headset again. Joe racked the wet plates to dry. I'll move with the midden. You want to go find him? I'll do that. Maddie's frown promised a talking to in store for the dog when she caught up with him. Not that Bob would mind. Words ran off him like water off a duck's back. Cameras first. 
She prodded the battered TV set to life, and grainy, bisected views flickered across the screen. Garden, yard, Dutch barn, north paddock, east paddock, main field, copse. Hmm. She was still fiddling with the small holding surveillance system when Joe clambered back into the driver's seat of the tractor and fired it up once more. This time there was no cough of black smoke, and as he hauled the mess of manure out of the barn and piled it into a three-meter-high mitten, a quarter of a ton at a time, he almost managed to forget about the morning's unwelcome visitor. Almost. By late morning, the midden was humming with flies and producing a remarkable stench, but the barn was clean enough to flush out with a hose and broom. Joe was about to begin hauling the midden over to the fermentation tanks buried round the far side of the house when he saw Maddie coming back up the path, shaking her head. He knew at once what was wrong. Bob? Bob's fine. I left him riding shotgun on the goats. Her expression was peculiar. But that farm... Where? He hurried after her. Squatting in the woods down by the stream, just over our fence. It's not trespassing, then. It's put-down feeder roots. Do you have any idea what that means? I don't... Joe's face wrinkled in puzzlement. Oh. Yes, oh. She stared back at the outbuildings between their home and the woods at the bottom of their small holding. And, if looks could kill, the intruder would be dead a thousand times over. It's going to estivate, Joe. Then it's going to grow to maturity on our patch. And do you know what it said it was going to do when it finishes growing? Jupiter! Bugger, Joe said faintly, as the true gravity of their situation began to sink in. We'll have to deal with it first. That wasn't what I meant. But Joe was already on his way out the door. She watched him crossing the yard, then shook her head. Why am I stuck here? She asked herself, but the cooker wasn't answering. The hamlet of Outer Cheswick lay four kilometers down the road from Armitage End. Four kilometers past mostly derelict houses and broken-down barns, fields given over to weeds, and walls damaged by trees. The second half of the 21st century had been cruel years for the British agro-business sector, even harsher if taken in combination with the decline in population and the consequent housing surplus. As a result, the dropouts of the 40s and 50s were able to take their pick from among the gutted shells of once fine farmhouses. They chose the best and moved in, squatted in the derelict outbuildings, planted their seeds, and tended their flocks, and practiced their DIY skills, until a generation later, a mansion fit for a squire stood in lonely isolation alongside a decaying road where no more cars drove. Or rather, it would have taken a generation had there been any children against whose lives it could be measured. These were the latter decades of the population crash, and what a previous century would have labeled downshifter dink couples were now in the majority, far outnumbering the breeder colonies. In this aspect of their life, Joe and Maddie were boringly conventional. In other respects, they weren't. Maddie's nightmares, her aversion to alcohol, and her withdrawal from society were all relics of her time in peace force. As for Joe, he liked it here, hated cities, hated the net, hated the burn of the new, anything for a quiet life. The Pig and Pizzle, on the outskirts of Outer Cheswick, was the only pub within about ten kilometers, certainly the only one within staggering distance for Joe when he'd had a skinful of mild, and it was naturally a seething den of local gossip, not least because old Brenda refused to allow electricity, much less bandwidth, into the premises. This was not out of any sense of misplaced technophobia, but a side effect of Brenda's previous life as an attack hacker with the European Defense Forces. <laughs> Joe paused at the bar. Pint of bitter? 
Brenda glanced at him and nodded, then went back to loading the antique washing machine. Presently, she pulled a clean glass down from the shelf and held it under the tap. Have you got phone trouble? She said noncommittally as she worked the hand pump on the beer engine. Uh-huh. Joe focused on the glass. Where'd you get that? Never you mind. She put the glass down to give the head time to settle. You want to talk to Arthur and Wendy, the rat about farms. They had one the other year. Happens. Joe took his pint. Thanks, Brenda. The usual. Yeah. She turned back to the washer. Joe headed over to the far corner where a pair of huge leather sofas, their arms and backs ripped and scarred by generations of Brenda's semi-feral cats, sat facing each other on either side of a cold hearth. Art, rats, what's up? Fine, thanks. Wendy the rat was well over 70, one of those older folks who had taken the P53 chromosome hack and seemed to wither into timelessness. White dreadlocks, nose and ear studs dangling loosely from leathery holes, skin like a desert wind. Art had been her boy toy once, back before middle age set its teeth into him. He hadn't had the hack and looked older than she did. Together they ran a small holding, mostly farming vaccine chicks, but also doing a brisk trade in high nitrate fertilizer that came in on the nod and went out in sacks by moonlight. Heard you had a spot of bother. It's true. Joe took a cautious mouthful. Mm, good. You ever had farm trouble? Maybe. Wendy looked at him askance, slitty-eyed. What kind of trouble you got in mind? Got a farm collective. Said it's going to Jupiter or something. Bastard's homestead in the woods down by old Jack's stream. Listen, Jupiter? Aye, well, that's one of the destinations, sure enough. Art nodded wisely, as if he knew anything. Nah, that's bad. Wendy the rat frowned. Is it growing trees yet, do you know? Trees? Joe shook his head. Haven't gone and looked, to tell the truth. What the fuck makes people do that to themselves, anyway? Who the fuck cares? Wendy's face split in a broad grin. Such as don't think they're human anymore, myself. Tried to sweet-talk us, Joe said. Aye, they do that, said Arthur, nodding emphatically. Read somewhere, they're the ones as think we aren't fully human. Tools and clothes and farmyard machines-like? Sustaining a pre-post-industrial lifestyle instead of updating our genome and living off the land like God intended? How the hell can something with nine legs and eye stalks call itself human? (laughs) Joe chugged back half his pint in one angry swallow. It used to be once. Maybe used to be a bunch of people. Wendy got a weird and witchy look in her eye. I had a boyfriend back 30, 40 years ago, joined a Lamarckian clad, swapping jeans and all the way you'd meet swapped underwear. (laughs) Used to be environmentalist back when anti-globalization was about big corporations pissing on us for all profits. Got into gene hackery and self-sufficiency big time. I slung his ass when he turned green and started photosynthesizing. (laughs) Bastards. It was deep green folk like that who'd killed off the agricultural-industrial complex in the early years of the century, turning large portions of the countryside into ecologically devastated wilderness gone to rack and ruin. Bad enough that they'd set millions of country folk out of work, but that they'd gone on to turn green, grow extra limbs, and emigrate to the outer solar system was adding insult to injury, and having a good time in the process, by all accounts. (laughs) Didn't you have a farm problem a couple years back? I did that. Art clutched his pint mug protectively. It went away. 
Yeah, well... Wendy stared at him cautiously. No fireworks, like... Joe caught her eye. And no body, huh? Metabolism, said Wendy, apparently coming to some kind of decision. That's where it's at. Meat. Joe, no bio geek, rolled the unfamiliar word around his mouth irritably. I used to be a software dude back before I burned rats. You're going to have to explain the jargon before you use it. You ever wondered how those farms get to Jupiter? Wendy probed. Well, Joe shook his head. They like grow stage trees, rocket logs, and, and they estivate and you are fucked if they do it next door because those trees go up, they toast about 100 hectares. Very good. Wendy said heavily. She picked up her mug in both hands and gnawed on the rim, edgily glancing around as if hunting for police gnats. Let's you and me take a hike. Pausing at the bar for old Brenda to refill her mug, Wendy led Joe out past Spiffy Berkey and her latest femme, a pair of throwbacks in green Wellingtons and barber jackets, out into what had once been a car park and was now a tattered waste ground behind the pub. It was dark, and no residual light pollution stained the sky. The Milky Way was visible overhead, along with a pea-sized red cloud of orbitals that had gradually swallowed Jupiter over the past few years. You wired? No. Why? She pulled out a fist-sized box and pushed a button on the side of it, waited for a light on its side to blink green, and nodded. Fucking police bugs. Isn't that a... Ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. Wendy grinned. Uh Uh-huh. Joe took a deep breath. He guessed Wendy had some dodgy connections. And this... A portable local jammer was proof. Any police bugs within two or three meters would be blind and dumb, unable to relay their chat to the keyword-trawling subsentient coppers whose job it was to prevent conspiracy-to-commit offenses before they happened. It was a relic of the Internet age, when enthusiastic legislators had accidentally demolished the right of free speech in public by demanding keyword monitoring of everything within range of a network terminal, not realizing that in another few decades, network terminals would be self-replicating bots the size of fleas and about as common as dirt. The net itself had collapsed shortly thereafter under the weight of self-replicating viral libel lawsuits. But the the legacy of public surveillance remained. Okay, so tell me about metabol... Metabolism. Wendy began walking towards the field behind the pub. And stage trees. Stage trees started out as science fiction, like some guy called Niven. Anyway, what you do is you take a pine tree and you hack it. The xylem vessels running up the heartwood, usually they just lingify and die like a normal tree. Stage trees go one better. Before the cells die, they nitrate the cellulose in the walls. Takes one fucking crazy bunch of hacked enzymes to do it, right? And lots of energy, more energy than trees normally have to waste. Anyways, by the time the tree's dead, it's 90% nitrocellulose, plus built-in stiffeners and baffles and microstructures. It's not like straight explosive, but it detonates cell by cell, and some of the xylem tubes are, well, the farm grows custom-hacked fungal hyphae with depluralizing membrane nicked from human axons down to trigger the reaction. It's about as efficient as at old-time satellite launcher rockets. Not very, but enough. Uh. (laughs) Joe blinked. That's supposed to mean something to me? Oh, heck, Joe. Wendy shook her head. Think I'd bend your ear if it wasn't? Okay. He nodded seriously. What can I do? Well... 
Wendy stopped and stared at the sky. High above them, a belt of faint light sparkled with a multitude of tiny pinpricks. A deep green wagon train making its orbital transfer window. Self-sufficient post-human Lamarckian colonists, space-adapted, embarking on the long, slow transfer to Jupiter. Well? He waited expectantly. You're wondering where all that fertilizer's from. Wendy said elliptically. Fertilizer. His mind blanked for a moment. Nitrates. He glanced down, saw her grinning at him. Her perfect fifth set of teeth glowed alarmingly in the greenish overspill from the light on her jammer box. That knows it makes sense, she added, then cut the jammer. When Joe finally staggered home in the small hours, a thin plume of smoke was rising from Bob's kennel. Joe paused in front of the kitchen door and sniffed anxiously, then relaxed. Letting go of the door handle, he walked over to the kennel and sat down outside. Bob was most particular about his den. Even his own humans didn't go in there without an invitation. So Joe waited. A moment later, there was an interrogative cough from inside. A dark, pointed snout came out, dribbling smoke from its nostrils like a particularly vulpine dragon. It's me. A metallic click. Smoke, good smoke. Joe cough, tickle, arf, and arf, arf. <laughs> yeah, don't mind if I do. <laughs> <laughs> the snout pulled back into the kennel. A moment later, it reappeared, teeth clutching a length of hose with a mouthpiece on one end. Joe accepted it graciously, wiped off the mouthpiece, leaned against the side of the kennel, and inhaled. The weed was potent and smooth. Within a few seconds, it stilled the uneasy dialogue in his head. Wow, that's a good turn up. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> Joe felt himself relaxing. Maddie would be upstairs, snoring quietly in their decrepit bed. Waiting for him, maybe. But sometimes a man just had to be alone with his dog and a good joint, doing man and dog stuff. Maddie understood this and left him his space. Still. That farm been bugging around the pond? Exclaim. Fuck, fuck, yep. Sheep shagger. Now, if it's been at our lambs. No, bugger it. So what's up? Maddie, yep, yep, farm talk. Sheep shagger. Maggie's been talking to it? Yes, yes. Oh, shit. You remember when we last did her backup? The dog coughed fragrant blue smoke. (coughs) Tip thump thump full cow moo beef clone. Yeah, I think so too. Better muck it out tomorrow, just in case. Yep. But while Joe was wondering whether this was agreement or just a canine erectation, a lean paw stole out of the kennel mouth and yanked the hookah back inside. The resulting slobbering noises and clouds of aromatic blue smoke left Joe feeling a little queasy, so he went inside. The next morning, over breakfast, Maddie was even quieter than usual, almost meditative. Bob said you've been talking to that farm, Joe commented over his eggs. Bob? Maddie's expression was unreadable. Bloody dog. She lifted the lid on the Rayburn's hot plate and peered at the toast browning underneath. Talks too much. Did you? Yep. She turned the toast and put the lid back down on it. Said much? It's a farm. She looked out the window. Not a fucking worry in the world, except making its launch window for Jupiter. It 
Him. Her. They. Maddie sat down heavily in the other kitchen chair. It's a collective. Used to be six people. Old, young, whatever. They decided to go to Jupiter. One of them was telling me how it happened. How she'd been an accountant in Bradford. Had a nervous breakdown. Won it out. Self-sufficiency. For a moment, her expression turned bleak. Felt herself growing older, but not bigger, if you follow. So I was turned into a bioborg, an improvement. Joe grunted, forking up the last of his scrambled eggs. They're still separate people. Bodies are overrated anyway. Think of the advantages, not growing older, being able to go to places and surviving anything, never being on your own, not being trapped. Fucking toast's on fire! Smoke began to trickle out from under the hot plate lid. Maddie yanked the wire toasting rack out from under it and dunked it into the sink, waited for waterlogged black crumbs to flow to the surface before taking it out, opening it, and loading it with fresh bread. Bugger. You feel trapped? Joe asked. Again, he wondered. Not your fault, love. Just life. Life. Joe sniffed, then sneezed violently as the acrid smoke tickled his nose. <coughs> life! Horizon's closing in. Need to change the scenery. Yep, well, Russ never sleeps, right? Gotta go clean out the winter stables, haven't I? Joe grinned uncertainly at her as he turned away. Got a shipment of fertilizer coming in. In between milking the herd, feeding the sheep, mucking out the winter stables, and surreptitiously EMPing every police spot on the farm into the electronic afterlife, <laughs> it took Joe a couple of days to get round to running up his toy on the household fabricator. It clicked in word to itself like a demented knitting machine as it assembled the gadgets he'd ordered. A modified crop sprayer with double-walled tanks and hoses, an air rifle with a dart loaded with a potent cocktail of turbocurarine and atorphine, and a breathing mask with its own oxygen supply. Maddie made herself scarce, puttering around the control room, but mostly disappearing during the daytime, coming back to the house after dark to crawl, exhausted, into bed. She didn't seem to be having nightmares, which was a good sign. Joe kept his questions to himself. It took another five days for the small holdings power field to concentrate enough juice to fuel up his murder weapons. During this time, Joe took the house off net in the most deniable and surreptitiously plausible way. A bastard coincidence of squirrel-induced cable fade and a badly shielded alternator on the backhoe to do for the wireless chit-chat. He'd half expected Maddie to complain, but she didn't say anything. Just spent more time away in Outer Cheswick or Lower Gruntlingthorpe or wherever she'd taken to going. Finally, the tank was full, so Joe girded his loins, donned his armor, picked up his weapons, and went to do battle with the dragon by the pond. The woods around the pond had once been enclosed by a wooden fence, a charming copse of old-growth deciduous trees, elm and oak and beech growing uphill, smaller shrubs nestling at their ankles in a green skirt that reached all the way to the almost stagnant waters. A little stream fed into it during rainy months, under the feet of a weeping willow. Children had once played here, pretending to explore the wilderness beneath the benevolent gaze of their parental control cameras. That had been long ago. Today the woods really were wild. No kids, no picnicking city folk, no cars. Badgers and wild quaipu and small frightened wallabies roamed the parching English countryside during the summer dry season. The water drew back to expose an apron of cracked mud, planted with abandoned tin cans and a supermarket trolley of pre-Cambrian vintage 
its GPS tracker long since shorted out. The bones of the technological epoch poked from the treacherous surface of the fossil mud bath, and around the edge of the mimsy puddle, the stage trees grew. Joe switched on his jammer and walked in among the spear-shaped conifers. Their needles were matte black and fuzzy at the edges, fractally divided, the better to soak up all the available light. A network of taproots and lacy black grass-like stuff covered the ground around them. Joe's breath wheezed noisily in his ears, and he sweated into the airtight suit as he worked, pumping a stream of colorless, smoking liquid at the roots of each ballistic trunk. The liquid fizzed and evaporated on contact. It seemed to bleach the wood where it touched. Joe carefully avoided the stream. This stuff made him uneasy, as did the trees. But liquid nitrogen was about the one thing he'd been able to think of that was guaranteed to kill them stone dead without igniting them. After all, they had cores that were made of gun cotton, highly explosive, liable to go off if you subjected them to the sudden sharp impact or the friction of a chainsaw. The tree he'd hit on creaked ominously, threatening to fall sideways, and Joe stepped round it, efficiently squirting at the remaining roots, right into the path of the distraught farm. My My holy garden of earthly delights, my forest of the imaginative future, My delight, my trees, my trees, my trees! trees. Eye-stalks shot out and over, blinking down at him in horror as the farm reared up on six or seven legs and pawed the air in front of him. Destroyer of the saplings, earth-mother rapist, buddy-strangling vivisectionist! (laughs) Back off, said Joe, dropping his cryogenic squirter as he reached for his air gun. The farm came down with a ground-shaking thump in front of him and stretched eyes out to glare at him from both sides. They blinked, long black eyelashes fluttering across angry blue irises. How dare you! demanded the farm. My treasured saplings! Shut the fuck up! Joe grunted, shouldering his gun. You think I'd let you burn my holding with that rocket launched? Stay the fuck away! he added as a tentacle began to extend from the farm's back. My crop. My exile. Six more years around the sun, chained to this well of sorrowful gravity before the next window opens. No brains for baby Jesus. Defenstrator! We could have been so happy together if you hadn't fucked up. Who set you up to this? Rat lady? It began to gather itself, muscles rippling under the leathery mantle atop its leg cluster. Joe shot it. Turbocurarine is a muscle relaxant. It paralyzes skeletal muscles, those that connect bones, move limbs, and sustain breathing. Atorphine is a ridiculously strong opiate, 1,200 times as potent as heroin. Given time, a farm, with its alien adaptive metabolism and consciously controlled proteome, might engineer a defense against the atorphine. But Joe dosed his dart with enough to stun a sperm whale, and he had no intention of giving the farm enough time. It shuddered and went down on one knee as he closed in on it, a serrette raised. Why? It asked plaintively, in a voice that almost made him wish he hadn't pulled the trigger. We could could have gone gone together. Together? He asked. Already the eye stalks were drooping. The great lungs wheezed effortfully as it struggled to frame a reply. I was was going going to ask ask you, said the farm, and half its legs collapsed under it, with a thud like a baby earthquake. Oh, Oh, Joe, Joe, if if only... Maddie? He demanded, nerveless fingers dropping the tranquilizer gun. A mouth appeared in the farm's front, 
slurred words at him from familiar-seeming lips, words about Jupiter and promises. Appalled, Joe backed away from the farm. Passing the first dead tree, he dropped the nitrogen tank. Then an impulse he couldn't articulate made him turn and run back to the house, eyes almost blinded by sweat or tears. But he was too slow, and when he dropped to his knees next to the farm, the emergency pharmacopoeia clicking and whirring to itself in his arms, he found it was already dead. Bugger, said Joe, and he stood up, shaking his head. Bugger. He keyed his walkie-talkie. Bob. Come in, Bob. Mom has had another breakdown. Is the tank clean? Yep. Like I asked? Yep. All right. I, I got to get her backup takes in the office safe. Let's get the tank warmed up for her and then shift the tractor down to muck out this mess. That autumn, the weeds grew unnaturally rich and green down in the north paddock of Armitage End. And that was our story. Let's give a big hand for our cast. For the backhand order, Earl Newton, Bob the Dog. My favorite rocket scientist, Laura Burns, Wendy the Rat. John Smore as the boy toy art. Evo Terra and Sheila Unwin, the farm. <laughs> the fabulous J.R. Blackwell as Maddie. <laughs> Sitting in for Martha Holloway as old Brenda, the barkeep, is D. Reed of the Millis. And Jared Axelrod as Joe. Thanks so much to Nobilis for running sound for us and for keeping all of us working. <laughs> Chewing gum and duct tape does hold the universe together. <laughs> I'm Steve Ely. Thanks to all of you. This was definitely an experiment for us, but I think it was a successful one. We, we had a lot of fun. I hope you had fun, too. All right. Thanks a lot. And I'm cutting this in at the end because we were pressed for time at the end of that performance and they were already trying to shoo us out of the Grand Ballroom. Once again, I'd really like to thank Charles Strauss and Paul Fisher. Paul put the energy into making this happen when I didn't, and he has my deep, deep gratitude. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. You can share us all you like, just don't sell us or change us. If you like this week's show, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider leaving a donation via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror at pseudopod.org, and Podcastle for Fantasy at podcastle.org. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. And that, finally, was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from a fortune cookie that I got a couple of years ago and had taped to the monitor where I do my podcasting for the longest time. It said, 
The world is your stage. The audience is watching. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. <laughs>